Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I know that I said last week that we were going to look at Psalm 41 tonight, which we are, and that then we would take our winter break. But I want to be very cautious about saying things like, okay, Jim has finished a book of the Bible, so that means GCA is not going to meet now because Jim's done. And so I was once a part of a church that there were a few of us who were always looking for opportunities to get to speak and teach. And so I didn't want to just cut everybody off. So on Sunday, I asked Tom and Micah and Steve if anybody had anything that they'd been working on that they would want to present next Wednesday. And Steve said yes, that he had something he'd been working on. And he said, it's not finished. And I said, okay, you've got a week till Wednesday to finish it. And so he's going to teach that next week. So we will have a Wednesday meeting here next week. And then after that, we will start our winter break. And then at some point between Thanksgiving and Christmas, Jeff will announce that we're going to have a Wednesday night singing here at GCA, which we've done in years past, and everybody seems to have really enjoyed that. So that's what you're looking forward to. Usually we take our break between Thanksgiving and the first of the year because of the holidays and people traveling and just all the busyness. Psalm 41. There is nothing about Psalm 41 that is difficult. It is not a long psalm. It is 13 verses. On the surface, it is David declaring first that it's good to act in accordance with what you profess to believe and that God responds well to people who do live out their faith. And then... David is going to say that he's in fear of his own enemies. That's a theme that we have seen several times through these first 40 psalms. He's going to talk about how those who hate him are plotting against him. And then, as is always David's want, he turns to God as his deliverance and looks to the grace of God to deliver him and closes the psalm with, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen, seems like a very appropriate ending for the first collection of psalms, the first book of psalms. I just described the whole psalm to you, and now we're going to read it, and it's going to say pretty much exactly what I just described. And if you were just reading it for the first thousand years after David wrote it, you would not think, well, that's messianic. Nor would you think, gee, that seems very prophetic. Because there's nothing in it that rings of prophecy. 
rings of Messiah, and yet Jesus picks up one phrase from this song and then applies it to himself, and suddenly we understand that this psalm actually has prophetic messianic tones to it. But we would never know that looking at what it says, because everything it says is right in context. It all flows with David's larger argument, and there's no reason to think, oh, look, there's a prophetic moment in there. You just would not come to that conclusion had Jesus not pulled one little passage out of this psalm and then applied it specifically to his situation. So I had to decide, how are we going to approach this psalm? Are we going to start by reading the psalm itself and mentioning the messianic overtones in it and then go look at that prophetic fulfillment? Or are we going to start by looking at the prophetic fulfillment so that we can look for that phrase when it comes across in the psalm? And up until I stood up here, I still didn't have a plan about which way we were going to approach it. But since I have my Bible open to Psalm 41, as you all do, we're going to read the psalm. And like I said, it's not complicated at all. You're going to have no difficulty understanding it. And then Jesus does something astounding with it. So let's start there. As I mentioned the very beginning of Psalm 41, David says, how blessed is he who considers the helpless. It sounds very much like something Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are various different people who are various different ways. Here David says the same thing. How blessed is he who considers the helpless. Now you have to remember that David is a king under the law of God. Behavior is a very important part of keeping the law. But David has summed up the whole of the law and the whole of the behavior that is dictated by the law into the simple phrase, look out for other people. Consider the helpless. Recognize when people are in trouble and be willing to help them. That, of course, should remind you of Jesus being asked by the Pharisees, what's the great commandment? And, of course, I think they were expecting one of the ten. And instead, he goes off into Deuteronomy and mentions that the great commandment is you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says the whole of the law. The law and the prophets is all summed up in those two phrases. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. David seems to be doing the same thing here, where he is mentioning the person who is spiritually prosperous, who is receiving blessings from God, is the person who considers the people who are not as well off as they are and who have no help who have no way to defend themselves. How truly blessed is he who considers the helpless? And what are the benefits attached to behaving in accord with what you say you believe? The original readers of David's psalm would have been Jewish people who are under the law. 
And so here is David saying, you are blessed if you say that you believe in Yahweh, if you conduct your life according to that law, and then he sums it all up into you're very blessed if you consider the helpless. Here are the benefits. The Lord will deliver him in the day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive. And he shall be called blessed upon the earth. And do not give him, that person, over to the desire of his enemies. The Lord will sustain him upon his sickbed. In his illness, thou doth restore him to health. Now, we would have to all agree with those three verses and say, yes, I want God to do every one of those things for me. In a day of trouble, in a day of calamity, yes, deliver me. Yes, God. Yes, protect me. Keep me alive. And yes, have a good reputation so that people see that I am blessed in the earth. And don't give me over to the desire of my enemies. Protect me. Sustain me when I'm sick. If I get ill, then restore me to health. Yes, those are all benefits that we would love for God to actually give us. And David predicates all of those on how do you treat other people. If you treat others well, then you can expect those blessings from God. So I think that that even carries over into the New Testament because there is a great debate, especially online these days, a debate about how much of our behavior is supposed to be predicated on what we say we believe. There are groups out there on the internet who say, well, God's grace is sufficient, and therefore it doesn't matter how we live. It doesn't matter how we behave, how we conduct ourselves. And yet... All of the Pauline epistles and so much of what Jesus had to say does talk about your faith being demonstrated by your behavior. How often have we seen Paul say, walk the walk that is consistent with your confession of Christ? So whether it's in the Old Testament, here David talking about your behavior results in blessings from God because God approves of people who are obedient to him and to his law, or whether we're talking about the New Testament, consistently what we're told is that if you belong to God, if you profess God, if you profess to live in a way where you're expecting his salvation, where you're expecting his blessings, then it is incumbent on you to walk differently than the world. To me, that's unavoidable. So that ought to end all of the internet debates there. I did it. It's over now. We will never hear those debates again. So. Right. Yeah. So then after describing this blessed man who is going to help the helpless, in verse 4, David then speaks of himself. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal my soul, for I have sinned against thee. In that simple verse, we see the theology that carries over into the New Testament, the theology that lays at the heart of everything we believe about salvation, biblical soteriology, that David is aware that he has sinned against God, I contend 
that only God by his Holy Spirit can convince you of your own sinfulness. When you are saved, he gives you the gift of faith, but he also gives you the gift of repentance. And he demonstrates to you who he is and who you are and that you are truly depraved before him. The only answer then to your awareness of your sin can be the grace of God. It can't be your behavior. I know you're sick of hearing me say it, but I'm going to say it again anyway so that I can sicken you even more. But you're your problem, so you can't be your solution. You can't be the cure for your sin problem. You're the cause of your sin problem. David gets it right here where he says, heal my soul, because God has to do that. Because I have sinned against you, we don't know what particular sin he is referring to here. But notice that the cure for his sin is, O Lord, be gracious to me. Because it is only the grace of God that can accomplish genuine salvation, genuine justification. Only the grace of God results in the redemption of his people. And it just can't be us. So I like that little verse because it sums up everything I believe about salvation in one little verse. Be gracious to me, I'm a sinner. That's a regular prayer for all of us. Then David starts talking about his enemies. My enemies speak evil against me. And then he gives a demonstration of the kind of things they say. When will he die? And his name perish, apparently perish from the earth. He'll be gone. We'll be done with him. And then David says about them, and when he comes to see me, he speaks falsehood. His heart gathers wickedness to itself, and then when he goes outside, he talks about it. So he's outside spreading bad rumors about David, He's putting plans together for the destruction of David. And not only does he go out and talk about it, but even when he's in David's presence, he speaks falsehood to David. Verse 7, all who hate me whisper together against me. So there's even collaboration between his enemies to try to do him in. Against me they devise my hurt, saying, A wicked thing is poured out upon him. That may be a reference to we have poisoned him. We have laid out some kind of plan to destroy him. A wicked thing is poured out upon him that when he lies down, he will not rise up again. So they are conspiring together to make wicked plans. They're lying to David to his face. They're gathering their wickedness in their hearts. They're talking about it, they're whispering about it, they're plotting about it, and David is aware that all his enemies are trying to destroy him. They began with, when will he die and his name be done away with completely? And then he says in verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, he lifted up his heel against me. That's part of his description of how his enemies have all turned against him and that he can't even trust his friends anymore. 
because apparently he was thinking of some particular close friend who may have been his son, who then turned against him, even though he had raised his son, even though they had eaten together from the king's bread, he had lifted up his heel against David. That is all historically accurate. So then in verse 10, David reaches out to the Lord, the only place that he can find any comfort, any safety. But thou, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up so that I may repay them. But this I know, that thou art pleased with me, which I find an astounding comment when you compare it to David saying, I've sinned against you. I know I've sinned against you, but be gracious to me. And then he says, and I know that you are pleased with me because, here's his evidence, because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. All of my enemies are out to get me. They want to take my life from me. They want to destroy my name from the planet. They're plotting against me. There are many of them. And yet here I am. I'm still alive. I've still been delivered. And that is David's evidence that God is for him. So David can look at his own life and say, it has to be you. I know that you are pleased with me because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. And as for me, you do uphold me in my integrity. That word integrity is my commitment to you. That I don't change. I don't wander off looking after other gods. I'm not trusting in my armies, my soldiers. I am looking for you as my deliverance. And you know that that is how I have been consistently. And so you uphold me. And I rest entirely in you. You uphold me in my integrity. And you do set me in your presence forever. So even though David is asking that God would deliver him from his enemies, it is also David's understanding that when this life is over, God is going to set him in his own presence eternally. Okay, now that's... The whole psalm. Was there anything complicated there? Nope. There was nothing difficult in that entire psalm. As I mentioned, it ends with, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. By the way, Yahweh is consistently identified as the God of Israel. That's the same Yahweh that's talked about in the New Testament. He is still the God of Israel. I don't have to pound on that for too long, do I? We have to realize that The same Yahweh of the Old Testament is the same Yahweh who's alive and well today, and he identifies himself as the God of Israel, but we won't get too Israelogical tonight. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, and he is blessed from everlasting to everlasting. So be it. So be it. Amen. Amen. That's a nice psalm. And David sat down and penned that one day, and that seemed to be the end of it. And anybody reading it for the next thousand years would have said, well, that psalm basically tells us to help the helpless, and that God will favor us if we do help the helpless. And then the psalm kind of turns inward, and David says that his enemies are after him, and he expects that God is going to deliver him 
his proof that God is for him is that he's still alive and blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. That's the whole psalm. And we would have no idea of its prophetic significance had Jesus not come to the planet and pointed at it. So let's start, well, I guess we have started, (laughs) but let's start phase two of tonight's lesson in Matthew 26. Turn to the New Testament to Matthew 26. We're going to look at Matthew, Luke, and John tonight, who are all going to recount the relationship between Jesus and Judas. And it is in the context of the one who betrays Jesus that Jesus brings up the psalm that we just read. Matthew 26, I'm going to start reading at verse 20. Now when evening had come, he, Jesus, was reclining at the table with his 12 disciples. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Seems like a very definite statement, doesn't it? One of you is definitely going to betray me. How could he be so sure? Is it because he knows the future? He's going to argue that he knows that's going to happen because it's already written in the scripture. And he's going to reference the psalm we just read. Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. And being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Surely it's not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Okay, so that's our introduction to this relationship between Jesus and Judas, where Jesus knows that Judas is in the act of betraying him, calls him out for it, but Jesus also puts it within the context of this has to happen because the scripture has already declared that it's going to happen. Turn over to Luke for a moment, Luke 22. Luke 22 is recounting the same story, but going to add a bit of detail for us. Luke 22, I'm going to start reading at verse 20. Oh, I should start reading before that. Verse 17 and 18 is when he took the cup and gave thanks, said, take and share it among yourselves, for I say to you, that I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken bread, he gave thanks and he broke it. He gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup has been poured out for you and it is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of one betraying me is with me at the table. 
For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined for him. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. So again, Jesus puts it within the context of these things have to happen. The Son of Man has to go to the cross. I have to die. This is the sacrifice that has to be made. I'm already prefiguring that sacrifice in the bread and in the wine. And I am telling you that tonight these things are going to take place, including the fact that I'm going to be betrayed. And they're all busy saying, well, not me, right? Not me. Who's going to betray you? John's going to fill in some more details for us. So go over to John 13. John 13, we're going to start right at the beginning of the chapter. If you would, Tom, also look up John 6, 70 for a moment. In John 6, 70, which Tom is now going to read, Jesus declares the absoluteness of his betrayer betraying him. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. Isn't that an astoundingly sovereign thing to say? I mean, we just read by it sometimes without stopping to consider that Jesus just said, I chose my own betrayer. I chose you 12. Don't you start thinking you figured me out. Don't think that you're the ones who came to me. I drew you to me because I picked you, I chose you, and one of you definitively is a devil. One of you is demonically driven, and I still brought you into my close 12 because what David wrote in Psalm 41 has to take place. Now he's going to quote right from Psalm 41, so there's no question about what he's referring to. In John 13, the first four verses say, Now before the feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper... The devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that his father had given him all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God, and that he was going back to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garment, and taking a towel, he girded himself about. Okay, so back in chapter 6... Jesus declared, one of you is a devil. In John chapter 13, we read that the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to go and betray him. And Jesus knows all of this is happening, and it's happening according to plan. And it's happening exactly like God had sovereignly determined it before the foundation of the world. Skip down to verse 16 for a moment. I'm going to start at verse 13, because he had just washed the disciples' feet. And then he asked them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master. Neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. That's their apostleship. The word apostle means sent one. He's the one who sent them. Therefore, they are referred to as the apostles of Jesus. Verse 17. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. What an astounding parallel to what we read from David. Blessed is the man who does the things that God prescribes. Here's Jesus saying, now you know these things. Now do them because behavior is all part of the Christian walk and understanding. If you do these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak to all of you. I know the ones that I have chosen. Okay, Tom read for us out of John 6 that Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And one of you is a devil. Now he declares it again. I know the ones that I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled, which says, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. That's Psalm 41.9. And you could have read that in Psalm 41.9 and for a thousand years never connected it to Jesus and never thought, oh, that's a prophetic statement. And yet Jesus plucked that verse out of Psalm 41 and said the very fact that David wrote the words that he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me, Jesus takes that and applies it to himself and says, from now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. So Jesus is telling his apostles, one of you is going to betray me. But when he does... Don't get angry about it. Don't think of it as an aberration. This had to occur. It was written down a thousand years ago that it was going to occur. And I told you and quoted scripture to you to make sure that when it happens, you'd be able to know, oh, yeah, he told us this was going to happen. How sovereign is he? How in charge is he? to be able to reach back a thousand years to David's writing and pluck that verse out and say that right there proves that Judas is going to betray me and I'm telling you about it now so that when he betrays me, it will be yet another evidence that I am the Messiah. I am the one you're looking for. I am he. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, You may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send, that would be them, receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. So Jesus gave credibility at that point to the apostolic doctrine. That's why we put so much stress and emphasis on what the apostles taught what the apostolic letters and history have taught us, because Jesus himself said, anybody who receives you, your words, your teaching, also receives me, and whoever receives me receives God. So the direct path, according to Jesus, to get to God is through the words of the apostles. And so we spend a lot of time in the word of God. 
Turn over to chapter 17 for a moment here in the book of John. This is all part of Jesus' high priestly prayer where he's lifting up his eyes to heaven and saying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Verse 11 of that prayer is, and I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given to me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not a one of them has perished except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, if you have an NASB or any other Bible that has notes in the margin, if you have a reference at that point, it will point you back to Psalm 41.9. That's the only verse they find in order to say that when Jesus said, the son of perdition is going to be lost. I've kept all the others, but he was a devil from the beginning. He was a devil when I chose him. The devil put it in him to betray me. And all of that happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And the scripture he's referring to is Psalm 41.9, which again, you could read right by. And say, well, that's too bad that David had either a family member or a friend who, who he fed, who he took care of, and then turned his back on him. And that's as much as you would get out of that psalm had Jesus not come along, pointed at that psalm, and said, that's about me, that's about Judas, that's about the son of perdition, and that is the evidence that the scriptures a thousand years ago predicted that I am going to be betrayed as part of how I die here on the planet for my people. That is what is known as progressive revelation. And what that means is, if you just read the early parts of the Bible and you stop there and you try to understand God and his revelation of Christ based on what's just in those early books, you're not going to get a full understanding because over the course of time, as Jesus came to the planet, he revealed more and more to us, and this is a perfect demonstration of that. None of us, I'm willing to say, would have read that psalm and come to the conclusion Jesus came to had Jesus not told us. And yet the fact that Jesus told us demonstrates the phenomenal detail and importance of every single word of God, which is why Jesus would say things like, not one jot, not one tittle, of the entirety of the law, the entirety of the law and the prophets, the whole of the Old Testament, none of it's going to pass away. I'm here to fulfill it, but it's all going to stand. Jesus took one little detail out of Psalm 41, and then he moved it into his own life, his own relationship, his own betrayal, and use that as the evidence that the word of God has to come true no matter what. And so I conclude, as I hope you all have in the last couple of minutes, that every word of God has to come true. 
And that even carries into what we've been talking about on Sundays and looking at Revelation. And I ask you frequently, has this happened yet? And we all agree, no, it hasn't happened yet. But does it have to? Well, it certainly has to when you have demonstrations like this from Jesus, where something as almost minute and specific as that, Jesus can use that as his evidence that every single word of God has to come true. So I use that as a a vote of confidence. I look at that, and to me it supports everything I believe about the word of God and about the prophecies of God and the declarations of God and the sovereignty of God and the prophecy of God, and every bit of it is going to come true exactly the way that he said it's going to come true because Jesus himself said that. Got it? Got it. Any questions? Any comments? Any feedback? Is there, since we know what John says at the end of this gospel about all the rest of the things that Jesus said and did and that the scriptures can't contain. Is, is there other messianic references in the Psalms or elsewhere that maybe we don't even know that Jesus referenced, but one day we will know and understand that? Is there? Yeah, could be. Yeah. I'm sure we're going to get to heaven and we're going to find out that we had no real idea what was going on in the depth of God's word. <laughs> All these people who are trying to find hidden codes and numeric codes and everything else. I mean, I, I don't adhere to any of that, but I wouldn't be surprised if God managed to communicate through his word on several different levels. And we're just too boneheaded to get it. I look forward to finding out the rest of that. A good message that I want to hear all that. that road to Emmaus message that Jesus yeah. started with Moses and all the prophets. Yeah. There's so many things in what the thunder said. There's so many things that I'm waiting to find out. And even the Bible says that the hidden things belong to the Lord. The revealed stuff belongs to the children. God is under no obligation or compunction to tell us everything. He's told us what we need to know to get us there. Once we get home, he can tell us the rest. Anything else? All right, then. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.